Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth in Rhythm Mothership guitarist, producer, composer, and co-founder of the fierce, groundbreaking, genre-smashing band, 24-7 Spies, founded in 1986. The group has seven studio albums blending metal, rock, alternative funk, reggae, rap, punk, and soul styles with socially conscious lyrics and Hazel's blistering fretwork. Their most recent release was 2019's Tremendous, the soundtrack to the innermost galaxy. Jimmy, thank you for joining me, man. How are you? I am good. This was long overdue. And I must apologize for it taking longer than I ever anticipated. But we are here now, so that's all that matters. Absolutely grateful for that. And thank you for finally carving out the time and making it happen. Uh, my pleasure. And happy belated birthday. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate that. And, well, uh, you know, I wanted to let uh, viewers know this is actually um, – you know, the first time that I'm interviewing you since 1989, mm -hmm. and I wanted to actually... Yeah, I know. You, do you still have it? I, ha I have it here. Yeah, I, I pulled it out. So, just to show everybody. I have a Xerox copy of it somewhere in, like, in a couple of I'm going to... Uh, this is a heavy book with other stuff, but yeah. <laughs> I'm going to switch my camera here so everyone can see. 
So it was the 24-7 Spies, Inside, uh, Inside Music and Video Magazine, one of the main stories. Ow. And there's that. And then also for uh, Black Radio Exclusive, when I was there. PRE. So... <laughs> Which was interesting because, you know, 24-7 Spies definitely wasn't your typical BRE. Not by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> no, we damn sure weren't. But, um, you know, I think um, the beautiful thing about us coming out when we came out and, and dropping that album in particular was that, well, first off, we let's go back to why the band even began. We started the band because um, there was... And over, well, okay, first off, we grew up in in the thick of funk um, when it was bands. So, you know, Band of Gypsies, Mother Night, Mandrill, Slave, New Birth, we can go on and on and on and on. So we, we cut our teeth on, like, the best of those bands. And then by the time we get to uh, late 70s into the 80s, it seemed, you know, when, when the advent of, you know, Prophets and Junos and drum machines came about, we call it the, the cocaine cocaine R&B era because everything was, like, super, like, mm -hmm. you know, and it was, like, all of a sudden, you know, the bands were almost non-existent. Guitar players were just used to put garnish on a track. That shit like that. And we were, like, hey, nobody's rocking, you know, and luckily... Um, the time, in particular, I, I'll say the time more so than Prince, because the time was just so dank <laughs> that they they had more in common with with what we were about than anything else. Um, like I always said, Slave for me was probably the last of the bands that really took guitar, kept it at the forefront, especially the first four albums. Um, Never, never, never an album without a guitar solo. <laughs> yeah, Mark Hicks. Yeah. You know, Drac, God, yeah, Drac and Danny, um, who I've always claimed as two of my, the last of the influences for me, um, because their interplay was just dangerous. Um, but the music had become so synthetic that it wasn't, it wasn't any, we, we all dug it because we were still young, but it was like, it, it didn't have that thing. So we started making music that we wanted to hear. And when we first started, actually the music we kind of created wasn't even what wound up on the first record. We, the stuff we were doing in the beginning, we kind of called it surf metal soul music. Because we... Tell, <laughs> the, tell the people where you came up, where you came up in, though, where, where you were living. South Bronx, New York City. Yeah. Um, 138th Street, Willis Avenue, Mitchell Projects. That's, that's, that's where I come from. And Rick actually came up, he lived down the block in Milbrook Projects, so South Bronx all day long. Um, but the beautiful thing about the South Bronx, which I would always say to people was, because they would go, how does a band like y'all come out of the South Bronx? And we go, you have no clue what the South Bronx was like when we were growing up. We had Jazzmobile, which was um, a, a, literally, it was a truck that was outfitted with a stage and a PA. And um, bands would come through the neighborhood um, and play on the truck. Um, it was it was absolutely beautiful. You know, I saw Hendrix. I met Jimi Hendrix at Randall's Island. Um, 
July 17th, 1970. Um, played right across the bridge from where I lived. Um, played at the New York Pop Festival at Randall's Island. Were you like five but years old? I was six. <laughs> wow. Actually, no, I take that back. I was, yeah, I was five. I turned, what did I turn? No, I was six. I turned seven on the third. I got my first guitar on the third. He died two weeks and like one day later, and it completely destroyed me. Um, and that's pretty much my introduction to guitar. I got to shake his hand. Um, crazy. But I grew up um, going to the Apollo um, Theater like every other week. And I had an older brother who was probably the hippest dude on the planet and an older sister. So I heard everything. Plus, my parents were like diehard musicologists. So there wasn't anything that I didn't hear growing up. Um, and all of that stained my brain. But by the time we put spies together, we were all cartoon fanatics, too. Um, <laughs> serious, hardcore cartoon fanatics. And I think if you want to hear some of the best 10-second blips of arrangements, uh, cues, musical genius, go listen to a Tex Avery, go listen to an old Warner Brothers cartoon, you know, any of that stuff, and you will just hear pure genius. And that's why nine out of ten people, you know, don't remember a theme song. <laughs> they'll remember something that they heard, you know, from from a cartoon or, or a jingle. Yeah. Yeah. Because literally it's ten to twenty seconds of of musical masturbation that you can't get out. It just stays in your head. Um, Earworm, yeah. Seriously. So that was um spies came about because we got frustrated with what existed. Um, we didn't like what we were hearing, and we wanted to we wanted to create music that were that was more about what we were about. And um, I don't think <laughs> I don't think <laughs> the beautiful thing was we didn't care. Um, <laughs> we didn't care what anybody thought um, because we didn't play music for the people. We played music for us, which meant that if you dug what we did then you must have really dug it, as opposed to catering to people. You know, like, oh, we wrote this with you in mind. I didn't give a fuck about y'all. We, we wrote this for us. <laughs> but it, it wound up working out, you know. Did, did you uh, have any lessons, or you just self-taught? or Self-taught. Um, <clears throat> so my, my thing, there's two things that happened with me and music. So when I was five, um, Interesting. When I was five, I discovered I had synesthesia. Didn't, didn't know what it was. I don't know um, what it is. <laughs> <laughs> synesthesia is when music becomes sound and uh, becomes colors. Sound becomes colors. Um, so, you know, Saturdays, my mom and my dad would be cleaning up. Um, that went out. My mom was cleaning up. and But the, turn, the record player was always on. And on this particular day, well, I was always obsessed with labels, um, albums, labels, credits. This is me at five, but I would stare at a record spinning on a turntable. I never forgot. So it was six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. Wilson Pickett <laughs> playing on the turntable, and I'm, I'm watching it. I'm watching it spin, and for some strange reason, I reached out and I grabbed the spindle. And when I grabbed the spindle, it slowed down the pitch of the record. And when I slowed it down, I saw colors um, come out of the speakers. 
and I, you know, I just kind of froze. And my mother said, "What's going on with that record player?" I was like, "Oh, I don't know." And I, took, I took my hand off. It's possessed. <laughs> yeah, so I took my hand off, and all of a sudden, I didn't see colors. I was like, "Hmm." So I reached out and I did it again. Slowed it down. Here comes the colors again. I'm like, "Oh, boy, what are you doing with that turntable? What are you doing? Nothing. I don't know." <laughs> Take my hand off. No colors. I'm like, "Oh my god." Third time I did it, my mom goes, what, what are you doing? And I said, Ma, I see colors. And her response was, if you don't get your hand off that turntable, you're going to become colors. Mm -hmm. I let it go. <laughs> but then I ran into the room that I shared with my brother, turned on his record play because he wasn't in there, did the same thing. And the same thing happened when I held the spindle. When, when I slowed down the pitch of the record, but it wasn't so much about the pitch, it was about the down tuning of the key. And that created a whole another wave of, of how I heard music. I didn't understand it at that point because I didn't play guitar at that point. Um, but by the time I got my first guitar, you know, it came with a pitch pipe. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking standard A440. Uh, okay, you tune, you know, this is what it is. But when I would hear certain songs, I would become affected by it. Hair would stand up on my, you know, on my arm. I'd cry at chord changes. You know, like, um, I think the first time I heard uh, Stevie Wonder's uh, Superwoman, Where Were You When I Needed You, um, destroyed me. You know, this is what, 72? Yeah, that's 1972. Couldn't understand it. Donnie Hathaway. Um, I know it's you. Um, just wrecked me. But I couldn't put my finger on what it was. But at that time, I started to tune down. Because I was trying, I, I kept chasing colors. And I would, you know, I found a way to slow down. I didn't have a, um, a turntable with a pitch control. But I found a way to take a... <laughs> A matchbook and kind of stick it in and slow down <laughs> the platter. Well, other other kids are putting cards in their bicycle spokes. You're exactly. putting matchbooks on your turntable. <laughs> exactly. So that's what it was. But that, when I finally figured out, because I never told anybody, you know, because I, I kind of it was kind of like I thought if I'd said to people I see colors when I hear music, that's like telling people I have an invisible friend named Harvey when I drink, you know. Um, so I said nothing for years, but um, I went to go take lessons. Now, I was a quick study. Anything I heard, I picked it up. You know, I bled for like two years. That's how much I wanted to play. I played till I had no skin. Um, but I, I learned. And um, by the time I was 12, Maybe even eleven, you know, I could, I could, I could outplay most grown folks. Um, but I tried to go take lessons when I was nine, and old guy, old, old guy, Methuselah old. Um, I come in, and tells me sit down. I sit down. He goes, um, so show me, show me, show me what you know. Okay, so I'm I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. He's he's just nonplussed. He's just not. He's just kind of like stone faced. I'm like, whatever. He goes, okay. He goes, this is where we start. He pulls out Mel Bay Book One. <laughs> so he was really starting from the beginning. 
I'm like, all right, you know, whatever. So it's like C, 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 G, G, G. And I'm like, now, I already understand inversions. I don't read music, but I, I know I know how to get to wherever I need to get to. And while he's showing me the basic, you know, fret hand, the fretting, I'm like, can I play this like this? Because it was already more comfortable for me. And by, like, the third chord that I switched and inverted to the way I wanted to play it, he got mad. And stopped playing, slamming the guitar down. You're in my school. If you're going to learn from me, you learn like I teach you. Or you can leave. I was like, <laughs> and I jetted. And, I, and that was it. I was like, I'm, I'm already on a path, and I, I'm good. I'm good. God bless you with a perfect ear, a perfect pitch. And from that point on, I, you know, that's when I started turning down. And um, that was it. Never looked back. <laughs> when did you first uh, hear Funkadelic? And uh, Eddie Hazel. Well, I actually heard the first. See, that was the, the thing about my brother. Um, my brother was uh, light years ahead of most people when it came to music. Seriously, um, there wasn't anything that he didn't listen to, and there wasn't anything that he didn't have a first edition print of when it first came out. So, like, I heard all you experienced when I was four. This is this is how deep you know he was, um, and the album scared the shit out of me. I you know because the album just looked crazy. Um, Third Stone from the Sun was like a horror picture coming through speakers. I just didn't understand what was happening. Um, <laughs> by the time we get to Axis Bold as Love, this is more like, you know, Curtis Mayfield, you know, the, the soul and the R&B is more at the forefront than the psychedelic stuff. But this is pretty much almost still the same year. This is still 67, heading into 68, um, because he would get imports. That's how cool he was. So he would literally pay like, you know, twice the price because Axis came out the same year as Are You Experienced in Europe. Yeah, um, those were the days. Yeah. Can you imagine Are You Experienced and Axis Bold is Love coming out in the same year? Wow. But I heard all of that stuff. So same thing with Funkadelic. Um, and Eddie winds up becoming, like I had a Mount Rushmore of guitar players um, early on. Hendrix was number one. Hazel was number two. Um, Eddie Martinez was number three. And Ronnie Drayton was number four. Um, so the thing with Funkadelic was the first album, yeah, you know, I was like, all right. I didn't quite get the, I didn't get what I got. Oh, the first one's up there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get what I got from Eddie until Maggot Brain. And it was like Maggot Brain all of a sudden made more sense to me than anything else because he literally, even, okay, so what we have Funkadelic, uh, Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow, um, and then Maggot Brain. 71. Yeah. yeah. So the first time I heard Maggot Brain, it freaked me out because it sounded like Jimmy came back to life again with maybe more drugs in the studio or something. Just, you know, he was he was altered. And I was just like, what? You know, Eddie all of a sudden filled a vacuum for me. Um, and, and I was done. I, 
I, <laughs> he became my go-to guy um, and never let me down. <laughs> never. Never. Did you ever get to meet him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so here's my Eddie Hazel story. So 1989, our album comes out. We're on the road, and it's just unbelievable. Um, because the crazy thing was we had we signed to an independent label, um, but we had a major booking agent. We had um, a cat named Jonathan Levine over at William Morris. And Jonathan had probably the hippest roster of just about anybody at that point. Um, and what we had found out was <clears throat> when sometimes when new bands come along, there would be like this sheet that would go around to agencies and people would look to do trades and, you know, we got a baby band, you know, would you like to take them out, you know, give them some exposure, this, that, and the other. Nobody wanted to take us out. Nobody. Because we wound up opening a handful of shows in, in, during our come up in C in New York. And it was like when we'd open for bigger acts, we would literally – they didn't exist to us. We just came to do our job. And if we left a hole in the stage, that was our job. And it quickly got out that, no, you don't want these guys to go out with you because they'll make your job really hard. So nobody wants to take us out. So our agent says, look, if the record company will uh, consider tour support, why don't we just go ahead and book a tour and you go out and headline it and do it the, you know, the grassroots old-fashioned way, build your audience the right way and the record company said yeah and that was how we literally got launched onto America um, so the funny thing was at a certain point during the tour um, we found out we we're going to open for the P-Funk All-Stars and I'm like oh man you know because we're all diehards we're like ah we're finally going to meet our heroes this that and the other whatnot. And at that point, the band was, um, wow, he had Dennis Chambers on drums, <laughs> bananas, because I heard Dennis on um, uh, Don Blackman's album, and he just, you know, that stutter step, that crazy foot, he was, we were like, this dude is from another planet. Um, Amp Fitlon on keys, Eddie, Gary, Mike Hampton, um, I think he had Lies on bass, Skeets might have been on bass as well. Um, but it was, it was, it was pretty much everybody. So we're completely excited. Um, we played at a place called Peabody's Down Under in Cleveland. <laughs> Unbelievable. So we get there. They're not there. So we get there, load in, get our crew up and do sound check and whatnot. And just before we finish sound check, somebody comes through the door and says, um, oh, they're here. Um, where can they park? And guys like, oh, you know, take them around, go around back and show them where they can park because they had a bus. Um, we didn't know that the bus was a Partridge Family style uh, school bus. <laughs> Seriously, it was a yellow school bus with sit up seats, like no no beds, no nothing like that. And George didn't fly with the band. The band rode the bus. He flew. So I'm like, oh my god. I said, yo. Come back. I told Rick and, and our drummer to come back. I said, I want to make sure when Eddie comes in, he hears me. <laughs> so let's play Jimmy's Jam. You know, whenever you see them coming in, 
let's just hit that shit. So we wait, we wait, we wait. Finally, you know, here comes Eddie and here comes Gary. And we're just like, I'm like, okay, hit it. And we start playing, and I'm trying to play notes that don't even exist on the net. I'm, I'm just trying to go. I'm, dude, I'm, I'm here. You know what I mean? And they go and they sit down at the bar, and we finish playing. I give my joint to the, to my tech. He gives me a towel. They sit there talking, so I, I slowly walk over, and I was like, they were talking. I didn't want to interrupt. But I was like, oh, excuse me. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to meet you and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, oh, fuck you, man. I was like, oh, excuse me? You heard me. Fuck you, man. Fuck out of here. Fuck off. I was like, oh, okay. And he just turned back to Gary, and they continued talking like I wasn't even there. I was like, oh. So I stood there because I'm kind of like, okay, what's the joke? You know, what happened? Nobody said nothing to me, <laughs> so I slink away. I, I I get out the club. I'm I'm completely dumbfounded. I don't know what just happened. Um, I go on the bus. I wouldn't come back in the club. Nobody noticed that I was gone because I never came back in. My bass player at some point is like, "Where the hell is Jimmy?" And he runs on the bus. He goes, "Dude," he goes, "Everybody's in there." He, Why you in? And I was like, "Eddie Hazel told me to go fuck myself." <laughs> He's like. No, I said, yeah. He said, well, what did you say to him? I said, it's an honor and a pleasure to meet you. He told me, fuck off, fuck yourself, and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> he was like, nah. I said, I'm not going back in. He goes, you got to go back in. I'm like, I, I can't go back in. Finally, I said, all right, I'm going to go back in. I go in, and I find, like, the deepest, darkest corner I can, like, just kind of, like, hide in. And him and Gary are still sitting at the bar. I'm like, damn, these dudes ain't even moved. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, I got the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other one, and the angel's going, it's okay, leave it alone. The devil's going, you need to find out what the fuck happened. <laughs> I'm like, shut up. I couldn't take it. I finally got up again, and I slowly walked over there, and I was like, uh, excuse me. I was like, I don't know what I said. I didn't, I didn't mean to, you know, to, to upset anybody, this, that, and the other. And I said, I apologize. And he goes, oh, I was just fucking with you, man. <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, oh, I was just fucking with you. I was like, and I was, I was mad. I said, why the hell would you do that? I said, you fucking broke my heart. You, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you don't have a clue what you did to me. And he was like, oh, motherfucker, let me tell you something. I was like... <laughs> yeah, and he goes, you know, he goes, you motherfuckers have been, because everything was a motherfucker, <laughs> you motherfuckers have been uh, ahead of us for like a good portion of this run. I said, yeah, I know. I said, because once we found out we were going to play with y'all, we were, we were looking to see where y'all were, and it was like, oh, man, they're going to be where we were just at, like, you know, two weeks after us, they coming in here. And we, that happened at a number of spots. So he goes, yeah. He goes, and without fail, every motherfucking night, I got people coming up to me after the show going, oh, man, your son's band was here, and you must be so proud because they were fucking amazing. He's like, I ain't got no fucking son. Everybody thought he was my dad. He was like, how old do you think I am? <laughs> so he, he, he had planned on punking me that day because he just had that sense of humor. So from that point moving forward, he literally became like known as my other dad. And we stayed tight. 
Um, we played one more show together the following year in, in New York. This was after he got out of, out of the rehab spot. <clears throat> it was clean. looked amazing. Just wow. Because the scariest thing about watching them was um, it was it was literally a textbook example of what you don't want to become. <clears throat> um, because the party never stopped, and the ravages of time were not kind to those dudes. Um, and it was like, wow, okay, okay, well. <laughs> What became what was recreational now became habitual, and this is not what you want to do. And fatal eventually. In a lot of cases, yeah. So you know, but I, you know, Eddie, the show was horrible. They they were horrible. They were so drunk and and, and wrecked and everything. But Eddie was sober, and they had people like stationed all over the place making sure he didn't drink. Um, but he also professed to me that you know he was annoyed because playing every night. Was had become a competition. Um, everybody just wants to turn up and outplay everybody, you know, this, that, and the other. And I'll never forget at the game, they had rented the back line, and um, he had a uh, Marshall half stack, and he had a Telecaster. And the show was horrible. Um, it was the literally the worst P Funk show I'd seen. Um, and after about 45 minutes, they decided to jump in the manga brain. And, um, that was probably the deepest version I'd ever heard. Eddie played like I watched people cry in that room. It was just him, that amp. I mean, it, it was pure. It was kind of like the way people would, you know, like you heard over the years about how Hendrix had played um, after Martin Luther King died, and had played like this instrumental piece, and you know, the audience was just reduced to tears. It was that same kind of thing. Um, with Maggie Brain that night. That was the highlight of that night. Um, and we stayed we stayed in touch and we stayed tight up until you know up until he passed. Um, never got to collaborate though at all. Huh? No, um, but the highlight for me was I connected with Spacey T on our first West Coast tour, um, and I I had known about Sound Barrier because I watched the Rock Without the Road video, so I knew we had you know like. We had allies on the other side, just like, you know, we met the Fishbone guys, the Chili Peppers. Um, but um, Spacey and Eddie were like brothers. Um, Eddie had pulled Spacey in on the Bonnie Pointer record, I think. They had played on a bunch of stuff, you know, between him, Billy Bass, and they, they became family. So um, when I moved out to California, which was great, I had never seen... Um, they had done a Hendrix tribute show, and Eddie played with them. And the deepest thing for me was to watch that. The way they started the show was with John Conley's theory from our second album. So to watch Eddie Hazel literally with them playing a spy song was like, you know, mind-blowing. Just like, wow, you know. That's way cool. <laughs> yeah. How, how how much of a influence were um, some of those other groups you mentioned, like Fishbone and Chili Peppers, on you guys? Um, I wouldn't call them influences. I think well, no, I would actually say no, not influences. But what we found in Fishbone was um, a common a common instant kinmanship. Um, I bought the EP, 
and was like, it's almost kind of like when you realize there's somebody on the planet that has your kind of mindset. On the opposite coast. Yeah. His, his brother's from another planet. You know, literally, um, instant love. That's what that was. And we actually wound up meeting them, I want to say around 87. Around 87. Um, but they they were just... If I have to say anything about Fishbone with regard to what, because musically they didn't affect us. They actually, what they did do though, was they really showed us how to up your game because Fishbone was flawless. On the stage, they had no equal. Um, the only band I ever seen literally rival Fishbone's energy was Vintage Bad Brains. Um, because between HR and Angelo, you, you got no better front man. <laughs> Seriously. But another band who was just as important to us was the Bus Boys. Mm -hmm. um, minimum Wage Rock and Roll was just one of those pivotal records, once again, because this was a band. Um, in the midst of all this new wave mayhem, you know, comes... No, I shouldn't even say not new wave. Because they were something else. They were, they were just black wave. <laughs> but Victor Johnson was a beast. Um, wow. Um, the brothers, the bass player, um, keyboard player, just, you know, ah, amazing band. But um, the funny thing was, we'd also look on the back of record covers to see who, who managed people, who represented, because we were a band who had no shame. Like, send them a tape. <laughs> that was the days of literally send your demo tape to whoever. You know, and um, we wound up sending the demo tape because the guy who managed the bus boys at that time, a guy named Roger Perry, um, wound up managing Fishbone. So we're like, wow, this, this guy gets it. You know what I mean? So we sent him our tape and whatnot. And um, he winds up managing us. Um, but yeah, the brotherhood between Spies and Fishbone started 87, never stopped. Amazing band. I, I easily put them in like probably top five, period. Um, the Peppers were interesting. We dug the Chili. I I I dug the Chili Peppers. Um, I dug Hell Out. Um, and um, we saw them in. We saw that original. We saw that lineup with Hell Out, Jack Irons, Flea, and Anthony. I think it might have been 80, 87. Um. I think it was a Halloween show in New York, but I know it was it was absolutely bananas. They're still doing um, the body paint and uh Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. And this was I think right around the time of the um the Uplift Mofo party plan. Um because I didn't care for Freaky Styley. Um I didn't care for the first album, but it was the Uplift Mofo party plan that I was like, nah, this is my I can I can relate to this. It's definitely harder rocking, yeah. Oh yeah, fight like a brave. Um, the title I, cut, yeah. Yeah, the whole thing was just killing. But take me to your backwoods. Woo, killing from start to finish. I was yeah. like, okay, like, you know, and that's what that was the other thing that I also understood that a lot of people didn't quite get. Like, people didn't understand how bands would literally mature or or grow from album to album, you know, record to record. And I said, you gotta understand something. It's, it's the same thing that happened with us. You know, Harder Than You comes out in 89, 
and it blows everybody away. But what they didn't realize was that we've been playing this stuff for two years. This was our live show. <laughs> we just committed it to wax. So while you just got turned on to it, I'm like, God, I'm sick of these songs. <laughs> but now we got to play them over and over again. So by the time we get, we spend pretty much almost all of 89 on tour. When it comes time to make the second record, we already have ideas that are far beyond what the first album was. And when we dropped the second album, people were like, my God, how, how did the band just go from there to here? Like, Make this quantum leap, yeah. Yeah, like, did y'all go down to the crossroads and sell your clothes <laughs> or Like, no, this is, we've been here. Y'all just didn't know it. So same thing. But the Chili Peppers, it was that same kind of mentality. Uplift Mofo Party Plan was just such a, a, a leap from Freaky Styley. Plus, I think Michael Beinhorn's production um, put a little sheen on it. You know what I'm saying? Um, seriously. But um, the coolest thing was we wound up playing with them before our album came out. In April of 89, they had gone out and played um, a handful of dates when they got John Frusciante and um, uh, Chad on drums. And... Um, the coolest thing was we, we actually hung out, which was deep. I think it was, I think the, um, the Untouchables, who was another band, my God, Untouchables were great. But we all went to go see the Untouchables the next night. And John was like, I think, 18 or 19. I mean, he was green. Dude didn't touch much of anything. Yeah, I, heard, I, I heard he came straight from guitar lessons into the band. Pretty much. I mean, but he, he was just the sweetest dude, you know, and we would just sit and talk. But he didn't even, he barely touched a beer, you know. He he was the exact opposite of 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 them in terms of the, the party mentality, the drugs, everything. He wasn't a part of that. But cerebral, that right? A cerebral dude. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. But the show with them was absolutely great, you um, know. And I told somebody, I said, what most people didn't know was that when our drummer quit at the end of 90, um, and we were, we were trying to figure out how to regroup and move on, um, the first drummer I called was Jack Irons. He was the first dude, because I, I love Jack. And I was like, man, I imagine if we can get Jack to play in spies, you know what I mean? And so I got his number, I called him up, you know, but he was still, like, deep in the, the depression of losing Hillel, didn't want to play drums, couldn't get it, to, you know. And he was honest, you know. He was like, I would love. He goes, but I, he goes, man, I, I can't even play right now. It's like, I, I hear that, you know. But for me, the, the real good point behind all of that was when I moved out to L.A., um, I saw Eleven um, early, early on, and it was like, wow, Jack is playing again. And I showed up at the gig. You know, it wasn't like nobody knew I was there. They didn't even know I lived in California. At that point, but um, that's when I met Elaine and Natasha, and I say to Jack, "What's up?" And he's like, "Oh snap, you know, I'm glad to see you back." You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. This, I, want, this, I, I want to mention a couple things about that first record before we uh, move on, uh, Jimmy. Um, first off, it was such an impressive debut, Thank and you. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about Chili Peppers. Spies Dope to me had a little bit of that Chili Peppers kind of vibe. You know what's funny? So, I don't know if, um, and see, that's a, the crazy thing. It's like, 
Spies Dope literally came about not because of a band per se. It came about from Peter, our original singer's military um, um, service. That was that was something they used to sing. You know, they used to chant that when they would have um, 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 arms detail or whatever they were doing. And he just adapted it to that. And musically, it was pretty much the same thing. But it wasn't. I didn't hear. I didn't hear a Chili Peppers thing within that because I had heard that in so many funk bands <laughs> coming up. So that's the thing, you know. I think what a lot of people didn't understand was that a lot of the same bands influenced influenced all of us. Um. So when somebody would say, "Oh, I hear I hear that Chili Peppers thing," it's like, no, don't go don't go to the offshoot. Come to the source. <laughs> yeah. No, if you heard that, you heard that because you heard P-Funk, you heard Funkadelic, you heard Mother Night, yeah. <laughs> you know, on and on and on and on. But, All those threads, yeah. You know, yeah, I said, that's the thing, you know, I correct people a lot because they only, if, if you didn't do your homework, if you didn't know any better and this was your, your first exposure to this, this is where you assumed it came from. Um, no, you know... I, Love to turn people on to you know to to where stuff comes from. Well, speaking know. and we're uh, how, what inspired you guys to do the Jungle Boogie cover? We were diehard Kuna Game fans. There was no, there were only I'd say there might have been. We're talking about seventies, and I I saw them when they were still the Jazzaics wow. on a Jazzville truck. So this is like sixty nine. Before the first album, you know, first Cool and the Gang album comes out, might have been '68, but they were still the Jazz AX from Jersey, <laughs> you know, on a Jazzmobile truck. Amazing, but the thing about them for us was the beautiful thing about the South Bronx. Once again, is that there were bands. We had bands, you know. We had bands in every project. Um, because Christmas would come and everybody would get a drum set or somebody got a bass or a guitar and what. Next thing you know, there were bands formed, and a lot of these dudes became killer players. And us as little kids, you know, we would look at them and be like, "Wow!" You know, we had two bands in our neighborhood in particular. One called the Seventh Galaxy, and one in Rick's neighborhood called Stone Soul. And these dudes, literally, you know, we would just kill to like sitting at their rehearsal just to watch them because. This is what we wanted to do. But a lot of the bands emulated, there were certain bands who just struck a nerve with the local bands. Cool and the Gang struck a nerve because they sounded like the guys in the neighborhood, which was, you know, which was deep in itself. Um, New Birth had that same kind of effect. Um, the Nightlighters, per se, before the New Birth. Um, Recently, I posted Serenade for a Jive Turkey, and I tagged Robin Russell. And he was like, man, I, I say, you know, I've told him the, the first time I got in contact with him how important the New Birth was and the Nightlighters were to me. Um, and he was like, that's amazing. I said, no, dude, you don't understand analysis, drumology, Serenade for a Jive Turkey. I said, dude, I said, Valdez in the country, their version just, just it still I get the same chills that I got when I heard it when I was a kid. Um 
but there were just certain bands that struck a nerve in our neighborhoods. Yeah, cool those were large gang. bands too. Uh-huh. So Cool and the Gang was one of them, and it was so funny because we didn't play we didn't play covers um, in our set because we didn't even have real songs <laughs> in the beginning. We played cartoon themes and, and, and these crazy things that just sounded like Frank Zappa meets Funkadelic all smoking dust and drinking 40 ounces. Um, <laughs> it was crazy music, but and we were four black dudes that nobody saw coming. Um, and we did that. And then by the time we, but our initial roots, we all went back to Corner Gang. And that was the first song I think we added before Two years before we even had a deal, we had a jungle boogie. You started playing it. We were like, man, because we would pull out songs that we all grew up on. And next thing you knew, by the time the deal came around, we were like, yo, let's cut it. It was like, yeah, 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 okay, cool, cool, cool. Did you and ever? I, did you ever get any feedback from the Bells or anyone in that group? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Luckily, I, I was able. Wow, I think it was Ronald who reached out. And he was like, "Rest wow. his soul." Yeah, yeah. You know, it's heartbreaking for him to leave. Um, but he was like, "Wow," because <laughs> I think I think the funniest thing, you know, first off, because you don't even think about what the people who made the song originally, you don't even think about them hearing when you make when you cover it. Like in our minds, it was like they'll never know. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll see a check show up because we had to credit them as the songwriters and stuff. But other than that, you know, they'll never be fans of what we do. We, We're not in their orbit, yeah. Yeah, and um, at every turn, every time we did a cover of something, I, I was always amazed when there was feedback or somebody reached out because it was like, you got to be kidding. You can't possibly know who we are let alone <laughs> like what we do. <laughs> but Ronald Bell was like, man, if I ever thought about a rock version, he goes, ah, you make me wish we did that. <laughs> I said, yeah, y'all could have did like Jungle Boogie 1989, <laughs> you know? Or if I'd have known that, we could have got y'all to play real horns on the record. But he was like, y'all brothers keep doing it. Like, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Very cool. And that, that track on there, uh, Ballots, not bullets. Man, mm. that's still timely. <laughs> you know, the one thing about Peter, our original singer, which was always interesting, was his whole, I think I think his mindset at that point in particular, um, it was like half his military experience and the other half was music. And there were certain things that had altered him musically, Black Uhuru, um, left a stain in his brain. Um, uh, I'm going to say Fishbone left a stain in his brain as well. Um, but Bad Brains left a stain in his brain. Um, and all of a sudden, he had stepped into this, shall we say, consciousness. And um, always pretty much hip to, we all were hip to current events. Um, but he would always be the one that would want to write something, you know, timely 
and ballots not bullets happened to come about and um he was like you know he, he brings it to us and that was the thing because he he wrote in a strange way um he never brought you a song and, and it made sense <laughs> he brought you a song and you went and and you go you get it right and you're like no so my job became making sense out of what he would present and um he was like yeah you know let's, let's bring it out you know ah, okay cool so gotcha gotcha worked it out yeah timely absolutely same thing with rick with social play you know it's like social play on that album could come out right now you know which would have been a perfect you know analysis that you know that's the funny thing i think on almost every album there's a song that stands the test of time with in relation to what's happening you know um we can go to 92 when we drop strength in numbers and um, we had a song called crime story on there and um you know it it's it, it made me sad that 20 how 20 plus years later you know whenever there's uh the shooting of an unarmed black man by a cop crime story always pops up and i get tagged like 10 million times like this song came out in 92 and it's still relevant today and you know and then i would get asked like the crazy question like um do you ever think about recutting it i said no it was, it was bad enough that it got written in the first place um so no i have no desire to recut anything like that y'all y'all keep playing it you know what i'm saying that's it um, yeah there's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.